Hello and welcome to the Week in Review, or, I should, or should I say the Year in Review. It's the last episode of the year and thus the last episode of the series. I'm joined by Mario Lagos, who actually over the course of this year has uh, joined the show and joined Ballbrook. So Mario, how, how are you, sir? I'm well, thanks. And it's nice to join you for the last episode of the year. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably the easiest recording we've ever had to plan in that I just put together a list of six events or, or, or general themes in chronological order and was going to discuss them rather than, you know, sort of trying to figure out what was newsworthy this week and if there was anything newsworthy this week. Um, but yeah, so it's been something of an interesting year. I mean, um, Luke and I did an episode last week about you know, looking to the year ahead and we both had a, a strangely cautious optimism going into the new year. Um, although before recording, we, we met, we, we sort of, we spoke about, the idea of compartmentalizing your life into years and how you first do it on birthdays rather than you know but I mean, the first thing I sort of to get into is going comparing uh, the beginning of the year to now what do you think has really changed or shifted or really happened in in our society oh that's an interesting okay where to start well things have changed geopolitically uh, in a way we've never seen in our lifetimes um, with the Ukraine war. And that has changed everything. It's brought the world to the brink of a disaster or the threat of a disaster that could engulf the entire planet. Um, It's essentially, you know, the end of history theorem really has been debunked now. I mean, we're all the way back at the start of it again. Yeah. So in that sense, I think that's changed everything. And actually, I think in comparison to what's happening in Ukraine, the pandemic and trivial party politics actually pales in comparison because once you zoom out and you see it from that macro level, you recognise those things as really details of um, quite a plain and straightforward story and you see something like Ukraine as um, perhaps the inciting incident of something very much larger so I think how it's changed it's changed because of Ukraine everything has changed well yeah, but the, so sort of zoom in on that a little bit you mentioned you know everything has changed but also you, you brought in you brought into um Fukuyama Fukuyama yes Francis Fukuyama Fukuyama's end of history as compared to something like Huntington's um clash of civilizations um is that the change you see sort of geopolitical do you think we're moving into a more multipolar world not necessarily that that's going to happen in the next year or so but I think that's the beginning of a trend um where you you return to that east and western split Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I bought Clash of Civilizations uh, when I was at university to piss off one of my lecturers. And I found it so boring, I never managed to read very much of the book um, past the initial page, which, um, you know, sets out the the theory in a sort of broad way. Um, Are we headed towards something like the Clash of Civilizations? Well, I mean, I suppose we've always, I mean, I suppose two things can be 
true at the same time. I mean, there is a clash of civilizations, but not necessarily in the way that Samuel Huntington demarcated them. Um, although it's interesting because I think, so, um, I, think he example, I think he envisioned globalism as being a much bigger player. Yes, and they've been smashed, I mean, militarily, and you see Saudi making friends of Israel and so on. And, you know, we can't predict the future, and I certainly wouldn't attempt to in relation to Middle Eastern affairs. But let's let's park that for one moment before I confuse myself too much. One thing Samuel Huntington does in The Clash of Civilizations is he separates Orthodox Christianity from Christianity in a way that insofar as I recall, he doesn't with Protestantism and Catholicism, right? Am I correct in saying that? Uh, to your yeah, knowledge? I mean, I think he's, I think he, I think at one point he cites the um, Reformation as, a, as an example of multipolarity in a certain area. Um, but yeah, and I mean, I, I think, I think that's kind of on a, at a baseline on the money. I mean, I think there's a distinct difference between Orthodox and Coptic Christianity than, you know. And West it's particularly relevant here because actually a lot of the sympathy you're seeing for Russia is coming from Greece and Cyprus, two Orthodox Christian Balkan, Balkan, countries, Balkan. and the Balkans, uh, with similar alphabets uh, and 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 the same uh, similar, if not the same religion. So actually, it's interesting that you raised the clash of civilizations because that that um, Orthodox connection has proved to be, um, in one sense, genuine, and in, in another sense, paradoxical. Not because, of course, Ukraine is Orthodox Christian, is it not? So again, this is how two things can be true at the same well, interestingly, time. Interestingly, I'd say neither really. I mean, church church attendance in Russia is very low, and also um, Zelensky has sort of been sort of ch chomping bits out of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. So, I mean, but that... I think it goes past the specific religious dogma and speaks to a, a cultural connection, which is. Um, uh, it's hard to tell because both of them were under the under the boot of you know Stalinism and Leninism for about fifty years, about two generations, right? No, well, well seventy years um, was, was the, the grand length of it. I mean, in, in in that time, religion was extremely taboo in Soviet society. So it, it's it's very hard to to see it in. Not necessarily post Eastern Bloc countries, but post Soviet Union countries. You know, um, I think the, the generations that were still going to church weekly probably had died out by 1991. Religious observance was still very high, even under Stalin. Neither Stalin uh, nor Lenin managed to suppress religious observance in any significant way. And there would have been a time where I could give you some stats on this, and that time has since faded into history. But there is a part of me that wants to say there may have even been an increase at certain times um, mm -hmm. uh, under their, uh, in spite of their rep repressive activities and the blowing up of the churches and the killing of the priests and so on. But I think a wider point is that it's actually, the, the religion is almost a byword. It's almost a way to denote a particular cultural attitude. Um, so whether the observance is high or low, whether the dogma varies in one or another way, or what the political regime's approach to dealing with the um, religious arm is. It is an interesting observation that the Orthodox have, that th that's where the sympathy is for the Russian cause. It's in the, it's in the Orthodox world. It's in, it's in, it's in Greece and Cyprus. Um, 
is is that in a sense because Russia seems to them to be a stalwart against um for a, a bulwark against um very secular sort of American Western European empire? Well, I can't um I can't tell you exactly why. I can tell you from conversations I've had with people from those countries and from videos I've seen where they have parades for Russia through the streets of Greece and Cyprus. Uh, it's, it's not, as far as I understand it, it if I were to guess at, at the Cyprus question, it's because there's a lot of Russian money there. There's been Russian investment there for decades. There's a lot of Russian money in London. Uh, yeah, I mean, fair point. Um, so, just to sort of um, bring it back out to a wider picture, then say, for example, there is something resembling a, a maybe not necessarily a clash, but at the very least, a schism or a movement to multipolarity. And on one hand, you have the, the American empire and its, you know, European and Asian um, satellite states, effectively, in all but name. And in the other, you have a sort of a loose uneasy coalition of say say BRICS, for instance, or um, or Iran and China and Russia. Um I think the West goes into that at a major handicap. You know, one thing we've learned over the last year or two is that Russia has our energy and China has a monopoly on probably the largest entry point of internet culture into Western youth, TikTok. Well here's the thing actually. Um I think I want to talk about the the uh, potentiality of the West. We need to think of it in a couple of different ways. I mean, you can talk about demography and civil society and crime and strife. And I think in that sense, we're absolutely headed off the cliff edge. It's a disaster. It's not getting better. It's only getting worse. And we're only accelerating toward this uh, sort of brick wall with spikes in. Okay, mm. that's one way of configuring it. The other way is as an economic power, which is the way you just referred to it and actually i'm far more optimistic in economic terms for a couple of reasons energy um we can produce our own energy the only you know the reason we, we have it sorry we just don't yeah we just don't but we, we're essentially going to be forced to do so um we, we've essentially had our asses kicked and our pants pulled down and now we're going to have to pull them back up again and we're going to have to bend over and it's going to take a moment. It's going to be awkward and embarrassing, but we can frack. We can have tidal power. We can have offshore wind. America has huge deposits of natural gas um, and could become, again, a net exporter in not too long a time. Um, we have coal-fired power stations that we can um, get going again as they are in Germany or at least save from um uh, uh, shuttering uh, that's not the correct word for it but you know what i mean we can build nuclear power plants as they are in france as we are here uh some um i want to say f eight were greenlit by boris johnson unless i'm mistaking him for macron uh but certainly he he, he greenlit some um so we won't need Russia's energy long term that's really a short-term thing and russia's a busted flush they don't even have pavements I mean, they're, they're a shithole. Um, outside of Moscow and some of the major cities, they've got nothing. Um, to, to that, actually, that's, it's a fair point, actually. To, to be fair, most places that I've been to that were east of even Germany had that sort of issue once you get out of the, the major metropoli. Yeah. Uh, and, and what Russia does have is some um, 
you know, mineral deposits and uh, timber and oil and gas, fine. I mean, but they, they, have, they have Nord Stream, which has been sort of feeding Germany for a good decade or so. Yeah, and actually this will benefit Britain that Germany no longer has access to that cheap energy because that's been one of the preeminent reasons for Germany's uh, manufacturing edge that they've had over us. They produce 5 million cars a year in Germany. We produce 1 million. Part of the reason is because of their very cheap energy, which we don't enjoy. So um, they'll be specifically good for England in the medium to longer term. But aside from that, China, as I think we've spoken about before, is teetering on a population collapse. Well, yeah, it's going to halve in the next century. Yes, by the end of this century, their population will be where it was, will be where it was in the early 1800s, um, something like that. I mean, it's something crazy. I did actually um, write this down in the piece I did. So um, if that's not the exact number, then forgive me, but it's halving. Yeah, as you said. but also China's economy is built on a massive bubble of construction. But I think that's important that there is enough office space for every man, woman, and child to have three offices in China. And the, yes. there are cities that were built for, you know, tens of millions of people that are completely abandoned. Um, and they're demolishing them all. Yeah. Um, they're demolishing them all. So it's a bubble. And, and when it pops, I mean, there's going to be a lot of collateral damage. And, and, and that's kind of what concerns me. Is that a big part of the sort of end of history foreign policy was basically saying, oh, we can neoliberalized china into being an ally when really we just outsourced effectively all low-scale manufacturing to that part of the world it's less quality it's less trusted and you know i mean once once the big bubble burst it's uh it's gonna hit us too well this was the disastrous um implication of liberalism that's led us to our current predicament um to coin a phrase which is that all people are the same, are interchangeable and are malleable and in the right economic conditions. I mean, I mean, this is the same kind of thinking that underpinned a new atheism. You know, once we get rid of religion, we'll all be perfectly rational, ordinary human beings. It's the same kind of thinking that underpinned the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war. You know, if we just bomb enough weddings, if we just destroy enough schools, if we kill enough farmers, then they'll love miniskirts. And all want to go and all want also, to go. Also, that, that you know, Pashtun tribalists will adopt liberal democracy. Yeah, he'll be he'll he'll be like mates with Nick Clegg or something, as long as you yeah, kill his family. He'll um, he'll wait wait in line for his Starbucks and you yeah, know. You, you just need to kill his family and build a McDonald's and then and then yeah, he'll be at Aldi queuing for prime energy drink. Um <laughs> so, I mean, as the right. So yeah, um, and they were totally wrong with China, as with everywhere else. Luckily, China totally shot themselves in the foot. And although they will emerge as the preeminent global economy in the middle half of the century, they will subsequently collapse at terminal velocity. It's almost like, do you ever play Mario when you were a kid? Mm-hmm. And if you're in first place, you just get absolutely violated by the blue shells and that sort of thing. Yeah. That, 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 that just, it almost seems to be, once you're at the top of the global gdp ladder it's just a matter of time until you get violently knocked off of it you know i mean america is you know the the, the american century is over yes. you, you can see that in any large urban area in america it is completely falling apart you know um and a big you know, a big part of that was america had domestic manufacturing i mean look at look at the detroit went from being you know the assembly line of the planet into being you know probably one of the most rundown urban areas 
not in the world, obviously, but like, you know, compared to what, what it once was, its drop-off is, is absolutely remarkable. America's it, turning into Brazil. Effectively, yeah. Effectively, yeah. Um, I mean, best case, Brazil, worst case, uh, South Africa, you know. Um, yeah. Um, but I mean, we, we've, we've strayed so far from... 2020. <laughs> well, just very quickly, let me speak to the point you raised because uh, you were saying about about the blue shell theorem, as we shall now dub it. And so, on that, I would just say, um, how long was the Roman Empire around for? Let's see, about 100, 200 years BC, and the Western Empire collapsed around the fifth century. So, about 700 years. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, some empires last longer than others. I mean, if you go back to the 20th century, Argentina was one of the world's major powers until it signed this duff trade deal that led to some um, currency exchange problems and a balance of uh, trade deficits. So, yeah, look, people have the time at the top. Um, how long they stay there, in many ways, is up to them. And in a multitude of others, it's not. Um, but let's um, career back if, if you prefer to 2022. Bring it back, and I think it's it's interesting to look at the trajectory of this very show insofar as what we covered. I mean, this year has been a lot more, you know, one issue this week, one issue this week. You know, it's been very, a lot more varied this year. Whereas last year, I mean, one story featured effectively every week, and that was coronavirus. Not necessarily the virus itself, because I mean, I think we were all, you know, back when it was you know Luke, Michael, and I, we were all very skeptical of the measures. Um, you know, uh, I, I can't speak for the other guys, but, you know, I, I never got vaccinated. I never even wore a mask. I never really obeyed any of the lockdowns, but it was still there, right? It was still hanging over everyone's head and it still kind of is. I mean, you know, the, the COVID act is still on the, a matter of English law. Um, but this year saw the biggest step back. I mean, if you look at, even look at the end of last year, they briefly brought in... Um, you know, vaccine requirements, right? I, I went to see a play in London in like the first week of January um, and I had to show up that I, I had a negative test to, to get into the venue. And then now going back you know, a year later, it seems to have vanished from daily life with the exception of posters that they, that they just forgot to, to get out of the shop window and the occasional old person wearing a face covering. Well, I haven't even got the chronology in my head really of when it all ended, because as I was saying to you prior to this recording, start beginning i've lost track of time since lockdowns yeah. um yeah. you know th th there is doesn't really seem to me to be this linear stretch of events things just seem to happen and i have no idea when yeah um, i mean it, i mean for, for me at least the last two years have so obliterated the nature of so-called normal life uh -huh. you know us our parents their parents and their parents lived which you know nine to five work to your mid-60s, retire, then die. You know, like, that life has been so obliterated in my eyes that only now did I have the courage internally to say, you know what, to hell with it, I'm going to write a novel or I'm going to try and make a hands a poet or, you know, try and stand on my own two feet without having to go somewhere for eight hours a day for uh, five days a week. And, yeah, as a result, my... I have to, to double-check what, what day it is. I get the day wrong all the time. For me, yeah. there's no difference between the weekend and, and the week. I mean, when you think that uh, Partygate was still being litigated in March yeah. or and beyond in relation to some drinks that had occurred in 
2020 i mean i really have no idea when anything happens anymore uh but look let's speak to uh, what you said about covid and i'll just take it for granted that the sort of new year marks the um a hard period on the whole affair um other than in the ways that you described mm. um i mean it was nice to get to just never hear about it again yeah. Um, although I've never been, as we've discussed on the show, in, in uh, quite an entertaining um, debate, I'd say we had in one of these episodes about oh, over the am over the am amnesty. Yeah. So although um, I've never been as much of a skeptic, I was glad to see it cleared from the agenda. I was glad to see the back of it, and um, because it, it became very much like Brexit in the sense it was just that thing that was uh had really taken hold of the nation in a in a um, pathological way everything was centered on coronavirus anything that could ever happen had something to do with coronavirus and the fatigue was so intense by by a certain point right i think even yeah. even even for them you know they just grew tired of it the fatigue just grew there you know i mean you can you can see a dozen videos of you know Nancy Pelosi in a hair salon, Gavin Newsom in a restaurant, Boris Johnson having you know Christmas quiz, or you know taking off his mask as soon as he enters Downing Street, you know, or like you, know, you see a photo op where they put the mask on, then immediately take them off, start hugging, shaking hands, or um, the the G eight, I want to say the one down in the one down in Cornwall where it was, yeah G seven yeah G7, yeah it was just a complete charade. I think even they grew tired of it, you know. Well, it's it, exhausting. You've just made me think of something quite interesting, actually, which I think we've touched on in a previous episode. But one of the reasons the timeline is so difficult to visualize is because of how crazy the sequence of events was. Yeah. So if you really go back to the beginning, you mentioned Nancy Pelosi. Oh, oh, oh Nancy, it's insane. It's insane. Yeah. Na right. So just a very, just to, you know, Nancy Pelosi was in Chinatown dancing with people and coughing on people, <laughs> you know, and say, we love Chinese people. We love dancing in Chinatown. Donald Trump said, close the borders. The pandemic is yeah. a real threat. Then like, month number two, Donald Trump said, let's not be ruled by fear. Uh, that might be a direct quote, if not a similar paraphrase. And Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats said he's irresponsible. He's terrible. What a horrible person. We need to go harder, more lockdowns, blah, blah, blah. Then you have all governor, Democratic governors and mayors doing things in an inverse proportion to Republican mayors and governors and other municipal leaders. Uh, subsequent to that, Donald Trump celebrates Operation Warp Speed, the fastest ever rollout of a vaccine. And then you have Kamala Harris and Joe Biden publicly saying they won't take what they're calling the Trump vaccine. They said that on TV many, many times. They don't trust it because Trump's behind it. Okay, then Trump loses power, then, then and then all of a sudden... Months, it's within six months, it is mandatory at a federal level. Right, exactly. And all of a sudden, the trump they're calling the Trump guys, the vaccine skeptics, the disinformation people, the dangerous, and you have these um, internet communities like the Herman Cain Society, which take great pleasure in documenting the death of anybody who's not a Democrat who yeah. died of coronavirus. And... You know, if Donald Trump wins power again, it'll all, you know, so things have been so, um, it's like being machine gunned by craziness. I think that's one of the reasons why we lose track of what the hell just happened. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I remember, like you said, Nancy Pelosi saying, you know, go out and hug, 
hug Chinese people in Chinatown. And at the same time, you know, James Dellingpole was like wearing hazmat suits to, to you know, to, to the corner shop, you know. Um, right, right, right. Same with that Michael Tracy. When yeah. that, when the um, pandemic was in its early stages, he was wearing like his grandmother's headscarf or something absurd and a, and a, and a plastic beer box, or I don't know, something stupid on his head. And then by the end, he's one of the skeptics. But I think um, in a way that that was actually a good thing. You know, I think anything that really exposes people to what they're actually living under is a good thing. I mean, I think the last two years have probably been one of the biggest like public alarm clocks in history. I mean, so, so many people just accepted the, the 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 way of life that had become so ingrained, which is, you know, obviously it's very rooted in things like, you know, like a Protestant work ethic. But the idea of, you know, working yourself out of all enjoyment of life for money that you won't even have the time to spend for people who don't really care about you i think that, ex- that a lot of people are very people that i know are very very different people in their outlook on life to how they were two years ago and, and the the number one thing that i see is like a common the most among them is now just a complete lack of trust in 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 you know in in rulers not mm. Not the idea of rulers, but in, you know, who's currently in the hot seat. Yeah, well, just to touch uh, on the Michael Tracy point, I don't say that as a criticism of him. On the contrary, he's the person whose experience mapped mine the most, although I never emerged as an arch-sceptic. Um, I was somebody who took early measures. Um, I had a, a, a dual filter mask that I would wear on building sites which blocked everything and i and i was an i was an early adopter of having the strongest mask at my disposal and making use of it um i stopped going to the shop to buy lunch at work and brought my own lunch and i st- i very uh, you know i made sure i drove my made sure so i took loads of early preventative measures and actually uh, i mean this goes beyond the scope of the 2022 question but it is something that occurred to me the other day and, and perhaps it belongs as an honourable mention of the timeline of craziness, that the first scepticism was born out of the 5G movement. You know, if you remember, people were chopping down 5G masts and all that sort of oh, thing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. God, yeah. And then that and then that totally disappeared. So um, that that is one of the reasons why, why it's so hard. But then you, you said something else, and, and I lost that thought. What was the second point you raised? people sort of becoming more skeptical than they used to be ah about rulers loss of faith yeah i would like to see somebody like matthew goodwin or um there's another individual uh in my mind whose name escapes me eric kaufman do some polling on trust in institutions i'd like to see them do that at this point in time on trust in institutions faith in democracy i think they'd be really good at that especially at this moment just so we can really see what um people are thinking i suppose you know when we're talking about 2022 one one of the things that was absent was a choice outside of the two-party paradigm Mm. which is unusual because in 2015 uh, the two main parties combined won something like 60 percent of the vote and now they're now they're back the duopoly is returned Mm, mm, mm. i think as that's, that's been happening since like you know for again since about then right i mean the, the tory party sort of got flanked to the right and they sort of adapted to that um 
and I think just Labour returning to ostensibly the centre of someone like Keir Starmer, or at least to the liberal wing rather than the actual socialist wing. Um, it just sort of it, it just brought them back into being kind of big tent parties on the surface when really you know I think we know the truth about them. I mean, and to to break it down even further, I mean we've had three PMs this year. Yes, see that totally slipped my mind. Even though you mentioned it to me earlier, I forgot it already. Yeah, uh, because that three prime ministers in 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 a single year, and the last election was three years ago. Yeah, so that's uh, so we had Cameron, May, Boris. Uh, Liz Truss, yeah, <laughs> her. Remember her? Uh, and, and, then, and then Rishi the man let Sunak. You know, it was quite funny because I was shopping for Christmas presents and I went into Waterstones and there was that book, Liz oh, Truss. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they changed the subtitle on the book, but it used to say, or it was billed as Liz Truss, the uh, sudden rise. Yeah. You see it in the shop and it says, the sudden rise and fall. I'm I'm just picturing the author of that book frantically writing another three chapters, just <laughs> doing it overnight with like Red Bull and black coffee. And... I think his book, at least from what I've seen people saying online, probably did all right as a sort of joke gimmick book. You know, people buying it because yeah. it's such a silly thing. So it's Harry Cole who uh, is at the Sun, the co-wrote. He, he, he's the guy who got uh, cut by Boris Johnson. Yeah, Carrie's ex-boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. Um, so we've had three prime ministers. What do you make of that? What what are your thoughts on that? What well, does it speak to? It's it's hard to separate myself from just the complete and utter loathing that I feel for the party they represent. You know, um, uh, also just my absolute distrust of anyone who claims to you know speak for me um, while doing nothing about the issues that are actually important to me. Um, you know, they, like the three of them combined could rule for eternity and they would do nothing about illegal immigration or cultural iconoclasm or just the, just the overall just managed decline of the country. I mean, they they seem utterly uninterested in, in any part of it. So, I mean, I see them all as basically being the same person wearing three different hats. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. I think, I think, sorry, I think at, at the centre of it is probably the grand defeat of populism in the UK. Because I mean, at least Johnson had that vague energy about him, at least prior to COVID, you know. Um, yeah. and I then... was going to jump in and say, as you know, I, I quite like Boris and I quite like a lot, a lot of the things he tried to do. <laughs> With Rishi Sunak, I mean, there is really, I mean, I'm sure he's a very pleasant guy. I'm sure he's a very smart guy. I mean, I've got no, I've got no personal animus towards him, but in relation to what oh. we want from our perspective, He's a, he's, he's a Goldman Sachs guy, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. From our perspective, there's nothing he embodies that we would like as a, as a ruling figure over our country. But th- there was one thing I wanted to jump in with because it's a fantastic illustration of the, of the position this country's in. You mentioned illegal immigration. Did you see that a member of the border force operating on the South Coast whose job was to prevent illegal immigrants entering the country was an illegal immigrant? And he was arrested. <laughs> he was arrested as part of a gang of four on corruption charges. Is he so, still in the country? Yes, he's been arrested. He's he'll be he'll be in a British prison, uh, awaiting uh, charge, I presume. Um, so, 
that's the state we're in. Illegal immigrants are policing our border. But I mean, that's, that's, that's what I mean at the highest level of British government, though. I mean, um, Rishi Sunak said the most meek, tiptoeing, you know, sort of limp-wristed thing about it. So, you know, I, I, said, uh, I think this is an issue, right? Yeah. Um, the press kicks off. He backs down immediately. And once again, I mean, how many people have arrived in the country across the channel since he became PM? Probably, probably a couple of thousand. When did he become the prime minister? Uh, well, like October. Oh, it'd be more than a couple of thousand. Yeah, a lot more than that. Um, Se- several, several thousand people have entered, entered the UK illegally from that point onwards. Anyway, so and, look, and, and so, sorry, one second. Sorry, and, and to bring yeah. it before we, we recorded, you asked. We were talking about you know the the possibility of us disagreeing over the Ukraine thing. I said, well, it's hard for me to really get passionate when you know if you combine the financial military aid that we've been sending over there um add to that the fact that if you arrive in this country illegally you are treated probably better than a war veteran with mental health issues um and that you aren't you know just dumped into the street and you know and sort of told good luck you know well one of the reasons i think ukraine is especially important the first reason I think it's very important when you know there's a war in a war in Europe and there are you've got a great civilization a great people like Ukraine and they're being killed uh, that really that bothers me uh, and I'm not saying it doesn't bother you but I'm saying that that also bothers me in the same level that a British homeless person bothers me it bothers me at the same level. Um, the second thing, which is what makes it especially important from my perspective, is the existence of intercontinental ballistic missiles. Yeah. And yeah. a man who lives at the bottom of the Ural Mountains with a little map, and he's got a dot on every major city in the UK, plus all the ports, uh, you know, probably a few in the channel just for good measure. And, you know, a few here and there just to spread some radioactive dust. So that's where I think you, Ukraine becomes especially relevant. Sure. But like, do, does the involvement of Britain and the US not elevate that from being a territorial dispute in Eastern Europe to that global issue? This is an interesting question. And to harken back to Michael Tracy, it's one he poses. And... It's difficult to disagree with the statement that British and American support escalates the conflict. However, the counter argument, and I'm not sure this is one I completely buy, but one of the counter arguments is that acquiescing elevates the conflict by um, signaling to Putin that military venture is a um is a legitimate way for him to acquire new territories and therefore opens the door for further attacks say for example in transnistria at moldova and other places like that so that's one of the counter arguments of which there are many you appealing to like the sort of the neville chamberlain type thing where he you know he he, he came to the first demand and then enabled the second third fourth fifth and sixth Right, yeah, uh, it's uh, it's it's appeasement, isn't it? That I suppose that it goes to it goes to appeasement. You're I right. think I think there's some grounds in that, but I think generally speaking, we're sort of just between a rock and a hard place. Where the rock is, you know, we 
insert ourselves into that when this country is not prepared for war. Um, this country has has a standing army of that that wouldn't even fill a large town. And there would never be a conventional war between Britain and Russia. So, um, I mean, in a way, it hardly matters because there will never be a conventional war. We will never have British troops fighting well, Russian I mean, troops. True, I mean, because there'll, there'll never be a conventional war ever again. Not between nuclear powers. I mean, unless it's... Yeah, in a pitch battle. I mean, unless it's Pakistan and China and India all having a um, fisticuffs in the Himalayas or whatever they Cashmere like. Or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They can do whatever they like. But they've only got two bombs anyway between them, Pakistan and India, you know, and they're both made out of plasticine, so who cares? Um, but, it, you know, in relation to, you know, serious NATO powers and China and Russia, that's, that's a slightly different story. But, um, you know... It, there's a thing Tony Blair said when they asked him about Iraq, your intervention in Iraq killed a million people. And he said, what about the price of non-intervention? He said, because of our intervention, we instituted these medical reforms that mean the uh, rate of uh, stillbirth and miscarriage has gone from, for argument's sake, 1,000 per 100,000 people to one. So every year we save 100,000 lives because of the medical reforms we've instituted in Iraq. That's more than a million. So we've saved more. He said that. And you might say that's spurious and you may well do. But there you can make the same argument about Ukraine. What is the cost of non-intervention? And I don't think it would be in this. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't think it would be nothing and you've got to add on to that the political pressure there were huge marches i mean this is you know if you polled people 70 80 90 percent of people support what's happening in ukraine and were actively lobbying i mean for in, their government. In, in russia or in, in europe sorry in germany in britain in france not lobbying for sanctions in, military aid yeah 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 so there's a lot of ways to look at it um but and I do respect actually, I really respect the absolute kahunas on Boris Johnson with his early intervention to supply those anti-tank missiles that really blunted the Russian invasion and probably saved Kiev in the early days of the war. Well, then to to contrast that, you have Liz Truss going over there and getting her words mixed up and saying that Russia doesn't have the right to own Russia. Yes, yeah, she was embarrassed by Lavrov on the world stage. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, but, but it, it's, it, that's that goes back to the whole three three p.m.s thing. You have Johnson, who is, is you know, I think he, he does the the Eaton Bumble, where you know he he masks his posture by being eccentric, right? And that kind of yeah. you know that ranges from um, getting stuck on you know, Tower Bridge to you know um, making Macron laugh at the G seven, you know, um, to Liz Truss, you basically. Essentially, accidentally declared war on Russia. Yeah, on them, on them, the Andrew Marr show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you really think about what Boris did, and he was doing those press conferences in Kiev, I want to say in January, and the British press pack was following him, asking him, "Did you eat Colin a piece of Colin the caterpillar?" Did you have sparkling water or tonic water? And was there gin in it? Mm. Um, 
And he said, look, there's about to be a major war on the European continent, and I'm here to... And look, Russia could have hit... A... Let's, for argument's sake, let's consider possible scenarios. They could have hit a British carrier in response to our arming of the Ukrainians in the early days. They could have... Um, they could have hit our troops in Estonia and and called our bluff. And we're never firing nuclear missiles back. Of course we're not. Um, My friends with a navy who are in Norway at the moment. In Norway, right. We've got troops all over that region. Uh, we've got loads of troops in Poland. We could have been hit and Boris actually stared Putin down and won. He said... No, we're bringing in weapons and we're going to use them to kill your men. And I think that's serious. And I think actually, as time goes on, people will really remember that as a serious moment in history for which Boris was not um, praised in the way he ought to have been during his time. Funny, isn't it, how um, Party Gate was such a big story of the year? And mm. again, it, it, it derailed a premiership, you know. Um, and yeah, yeah, the the perspective there is quite quite interesting. Um, I think we should maybe move along again. And I, I, I don't think it's worth our time to discuss Musk and Twitter because there's nothing to be said that we haven't already said on the show about this. Even even last week, Luke and I went right into it. So I think that that's something to sort of skirt around. I mean, one big story that's happened in the last couple of months is. Um, is is the Sam Bankman Fried affair? Because um, yes. again, I mean, obviously, I think you and I reached something of an impasse about this when when it, it alluded to serious corruption in the American political system around you know donations and the sort of triangular flow of money um, from the U.S. to um, Ukraine to SBF's companies. Um, but I think what the real big shift between again, if you want to compare. 12 months ago to today is the value of cryptocurrency and that, that says two things one the the music has stopped you know the um, you know, uh the sort of jumping on a on a on a small scale very rapid inflation of, of a coin then getting out again is done that that era is over um crypto has seemingly been monopolized to bitcoin and ethereum i mean even you know at some point this year musk went on uh snl in in the states and you know, tried to pump uh his own doge coin doge coin yeah completely <laughs> failed you know um and another thing to factor in is that there's been chatter within westminster and this is what oh, he did pump it the price did go up yeah pump, went up again the, the coin didn't like establish itself did it um <laughs> Another thing, and this is, this is something that Sunex's been, been chatting about recently, is the idea of a central bank digital currency, which is a, a far more alarming concept than the wild west of you know the old days of crypto. Well, I think Sunex's just trying to be trendy. That's my instinct. I don't think it's anything to be concerned about, but then nothing is until it is. So who knows? In a sense, Sunex, Sunex is the first post-boomer, post-war PM, right? I mean, or the first post-boomer... PM, you know, yeah, better, right? Yeah, you um, know what that is. You know, we've talked about how he's from that Silicon Valley milieu. He goes to California on his holidays. He drinks Mexican Coke. Stanford. And, yeah, and you just know he was in, he was having a, a brainstorm, or probably he doesn't say that because it's not politically correct. He was in a mind funder with some of his um, spads. And he said, you know, 
hey guys, what if we did something digital, something new and trendy and, you know, uh, cashless and what about, anyone heard of Bitcoin? Let's do that and put a Union Jack on, you know, that's my impression. I don't think it's, oh, it's but, like, but I'm not saying that technology can't be hijacked. I mean, it's not about being hijacked, it's about being being traced, right? And it doesn't even need to be hijacked. I mean, the central banks are already, you know, I don't trust them. Yeah, I mean, it is worrying when you see people who have made political remarks or engaged in political particular kinds of political activity who mm. are subsequently debanked. I think Lawrence Fox has even been debanked. Mm. Uh, in this country for saying such outrageous things as um, biological gender exists and I have concerns about this particular uh, medical procedure. So if Lawrence Fox can get debanked for that, then what hope for the rest of us? Um, in relation to the wider point, it's interesting. I think it's worth saying I know nothing about cryptocurrency other than, and perhaps you'll relate to this. I think most people will relate to this. Is it, is it that you, you wish you, you jumped in at one point? No, it's that, do you have somebody in your life who is about 15 years ahead of the curve on technology? Because I've always had someone like that in my life who <coughs> tells me about stuff that's going to get big, and then in 10 years it sort of gets big. So when I was 15, uh, there was someone I knew who was telling me, well, probably younger than that actually, all about Bitcoin and how it works and the mining process and and, and things like that and things of a similar sort and and about war with russia and full spectrum dominance funnily enough but you always have someone in your life who just has these weird interests in things that then go on to get big i, so I, I don't I, personally know but I, okay. I, I i get what you mean and even then even though i've had it explained to me for like the best part of 15 years I still have no fucking clue how <laughs> cryptocurrency works. Yeah, that, yeah, literally no clue. Yeah. So, but I think you're right. Now, what's interesting actually is you know Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street. He famously described all cryptocurrencies as pump and dump scams. So he says what people do is they go in, build, build and sell build, sell, crash it, they sell theirs, crash it for everyone else, they get out. Mm. Okay, so he, in the past couple of years, has become the biggest advocate of cryptocurrency, having, for years prior, lambasted it as a literal pump-and-dump scam. And while, he also, is while also having a very well-documented history of being involved in pump-and-dump scams. Yeah, he's a convicted fraudster. He served, he served prison time for pump-and-dump scams. Yeah um so create a stock artificially inflate it crash it and you know and walk to the bank exactly so i i believed him i believe him the first time not the second time and i think there is obviously an advantage in crypto that it's untraceable so it will always have a use for um criminal elements for dissident elements if it gets that bad or even um, I, I reckon though, I reckon people who are very, very wealthy use it to like move money around without getting taxed. Possibly. Yeah, you can you yeah, can make money and move it around very easily on crypto. It's sort of like the twenty first century of putting all your money in the Hatton Garden um, safety deposit box. Something like that. But I mean, to, to go back to the point about this central bank digital currency, is that because it's not cryptocurrency, you know, it, it fills the same function, but it's not cryptic.
um, it is it is traceable. And I think what's interesting is that Sunak, like Musk, is like a pure technocrat, right? You know, like um, Musk is someone who, you know, just casually thinks about, you know, um, terraforming Mars or putting chips in brains to cure Alzheimer's. You know, that, that and Sunak, you know, sort of casually blue sky thinking about, you know, oh, what if we had a, a central digital currency? Like, that is the thought of someone who is so divorced from everyday problems, you know, like Bazza down down the pub, you know, Big Baz isn't thinking about, you know, how can we terraform Mars so that, you know, the first generation to arrive or enter barefoot on plush grassy plains, right? They aren't thinking about, you know, oh, what would happen if you if you put an AI chip in a in a in an opossum's brain? Right? Could you regenerate, you know, the kind of they're thinking, you know, well, there's no jobs in my town. Um, suddenly everyone's unrecognizable. The crime has gone up. My daughter is being harassed on my home from work. You're like, that's what they're thinking about. You know, I think that's that's why I find it very hard to go, oh, you know, just him thinking because it's someone who has a rate of power that is so disproportionate to their understanding of how people live. I actually did totally disagree with that. It's probably like the last sort of exchange. So go, go ahead on, on end on this. I think conversations about space, about aliens, about um, counterfactual history in a way that relates to those two things is actually has the most purchase with working class people. And that middle class people are actually the ones who are quite disinterested in all that kind of thing. This is and the bell curve thing again. And then it's the bell curve, the 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 big brain uh, working class uh, alliance. I mean, I um, I remember so many conversations as a kid in you know a, a working class. Uh, um, milieu not to use that word twice in the same podcast but i'm afraid i had no choice um so many conversations about gold of the gods if you're familiar with that book and about uh, is that um graham hancock i know it's not graham hancock but it's the same sort of thing it's from the 1950s so it's a lot older uh, i mean this is all stuff that can be easily debunked in the internet age but prior to the internet i mean this was seriously exciting stuff because you know now i can just you know, now somebody says did you know they had these helicopters in the mayan caves and it's um and uh, and you can see now you go on google maps and it, you just go oh it doesn't look like a helicopter what a load of rubbish but in the pre-internet age these things were quite captivating yeah. and 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 about aliens and extraterrestrials and tarot cards uh tarot cards were big and i remember being in so many circles in so many different places but the, the one constant was it was always working class people who were interested in that sort of thing i'm sure it was probably them who were reading and watching uh science fiction novels and and films i think it's probably middle class people who were oh elon musk is a you know airheaded and they're more interested in their own parents, i don't but... know i i i, I... I don't know if that was addressed towards me, but I, I, no, I, no, 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 no. I, I think I think my general point is, and I may have misspoke slightly on the first part, but I think generally speaking, is that kind of like grandest thinking? Is that the realm of a private citizen as well as a public servant or someone who, at least on paper, should be a public servant? Um, so I think if Musk wants to do it, fine. It's, it's Musk's money, you know. Um, anything that Sunak does, any sort of expression measure, is public money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I hear what you're saying. And and I also hear in my head that 100% Rishi Sunak used the phrase blue sky thinking in the 
um, mind funder meeting when he came up with the digital. He said, hey, guys, just blue sky thinking here. A hundred percent. He actually said that, too. We said, like, oh, so no, I'll just throw out the more seeing sticks or some sort. Of yeah. And somebody said, that's great. We'll revert. Um, 100%. Yeah, yes, it's detached. Yes, it doesn't relate to priorities. Uh, perhaps my tangent about who isn't, isn't interested about counterfactual science fiction or nonfiction was was just that tangential. But, yeah. um, I think it's the realm of, you know, of, of podcasts and, and, and writing rather than, you know, public policy. Again, like the idea of having a central digital currency is so, so far down the list of priorities of, of any head of government it's it's almost absurd that that would even be that any any energy would be expended towards it we know what it is it's probably because actually it's uh, i've revised my earlier position it's not the result of a mind funder meeting what it actually is is a result of lobbying by the tony blair institute and tony blair said you need to be modern forward thinking if you hear tony blair talk about the nhs he doesn't say it needs more money he says it needs reform it needs advanced technologies it needs streamlining it needs um better logistical software um mm. this is probably the uh underlying reason for this kind of talk but i agree with you uh it speaks to a government which is not in touch with people's priorities on the other hand it's not something he's been pushing recently, probably because he's too smart not to be cognizant of that fact. Well, so I, I think that's fair. Um, so before we sort of uh, bid you all a happy new year and, and get off of here, so I suppose it's worth asking you, Mary, what do you think are some of the trends that we'll see in, 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 the, next, in the next year? Oh, okay um you shall we start politically in the uk i think it's difficult to envisage a tory recovery at this late stage of the game i mean it would really be like tyson fury with that miraculous leap back onto the feet when he was fighting that american fellow whose name also escapes me um so it would have to be a feat of that kind uh, in order for them to get for, for them to get back into the fight, so we're headed toward a Labour government, I believe. Um, economically, things are going to get worse before they get better. That seems to be the consensus. Um, and in, in relation to Ukraine, who knows? For all I know, there could be a peace deal tomorrow. I don't know anything that other people don't. Or the war could rage on for another year or more. So it's it's difficult to say, but that's my general. I mean, that's my general feeling. I don't. I I think Ukraine will dominate twenty twenty three. Will continue to be the predominant issue, at least if not globally, then certainly to the nations that matter on the globe. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose we can really do is make semi-educated guesses um based on your current trends i mean you know do you want me to continue talking while you eat your <laughs> or whatever it is? something could happen though you know like no one in april 2020 predicted george floyd dying you know and that and that that, that <laughs> so, so sorry could you repeat that bit? i mean you know no one 
in April 2020 predicted that George Floyd would die in, in Minneapolis and what, what would come from that, you know. Yeah, yeah. That, that is still selling ripples to this day through Western society. You know? So something could happen, you know, I remember going into New Year's Eve, going, going into 2020, thinking, oh, it's a new decade, it's something, something new entirely is going to come. Then literally mm. that night, the first reports of some mysterious virus in Wuhan were, mm. were, were emerging, you know. Um, oh, yeah. It, it, they're really you know because something could just happen that will change everything you know and um that that can be something good it could be something bad i mean you know if you're a if you're a radical leftist i mean ultimately you'd be lying if you said that george floyd dying wasn't a good thing for you ultimately you know? well didn't they didn't nancy pelosi explicitly thank him for his sacrifice in a public statement i wouldn't be surprised yeah, I'm quite. I'm quite sure that happened. Uh, but it's funny what you say about the 2019 New Year's Eve because I remember it well. I was at a bar with a 1920s theme, and I was dressed in quite a small oh. outfit, uh, as was my girlfriend, and uh, both dressed, you know. And we'd been to a party, and then to the bar, and then, uh, and everybody felt it was the beginning of the roaring 20s and what a tremendous decade and really the horizon you know it was almost like Achilles taking the beach to Troy and he gives the Myrmidons that tremendous speech immortality take it it's yours and we're going to leap off the boat into the wondrous beyond and then everything just went fucking mental um so who knows what the year could bring but that I think that is a perfect summation of the decade so far everything just went fucking mental yeah that's where we're at we're 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 um and 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 the ride the ride shows no sign of stopping oh on on that note i think we'll um we'll we'll leave it there for uh a year in review um thank you mary for joining me um happy new year thank you for listening and we'll see you again next year cheers